I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Hello there, and welcome to the show. This is Once Upon a Gene, and I'm your host, Effie Parks. If you haven't heard yet, Bo Bigelow and Daniel DeFabio have built a television channel called The Disorder Channel, where you can see all of the rare stories in one place. You can access the channel through Amazon Fire Stick or a Roku device. I personally love my Roku and I find it to be super user-friendly. I had the honor and the opportunity to narrate one of these films called The Foundations of Rare, the Syngap Research Fund. It was directed by Bo Bigelow himself. Go watch it. It's also how I got connected to my next guest. Their son is one of around 600 patients in the world who was born with Syngap which is a rare neurological disease. And like many others, including CTNNB1, it affects the production of a protein. And also, like many rare diseases, SYNGAP1 is considered a spectrum disorder since all the patients are not affected exactly the same way or with the same severity. After attending a Global Genes conference, Mike and his wife Ashley were inspired to turn hope into action, and they founded the SYNGAP Research Fund whose sole mission focuses on funding the research science for SYNGAP1. What this team has accomplished over the last two years is mind-blowing. I really wanted to help spotlight the organization because they are a valuable model for all of us. Mike jokes around in our interview about always hounding the big kids to get stuff done. And I'm one of 13 kids, so I think I recognize a big kid when I see one. Anyways, listen carefully because this rare dad is on a mission. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mike Gralia. Hi, Mike. Hi, Effie. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Thank you. I'm so happy to chat with you today. Thanks for joining me on the show. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. You're a really busy man, and I would like to know how you're doing it all. Um, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I just try to start with the two things that matter every morning because that seems to be all I get done. Which which are what exactly? Whatever's important for, for SRF and then whatever's important for family. It, it's it's just, uh, it's nonstop. Yeah, I hear you there. So you're raising a young son, sweet little Tony, who has a rare disease. Can you tell us about what it is and how it affects him? Sure. So Tony has a SYNGAP1 mutation. There are about 550 kids in the world like Tony that we know about. SYNGAP1 is, is one of the um, many proteins in the brain that's really important. And kids with SYNGAP1 and a lot of other neuro rare diseases have half as many proteins as they need because one of the copies of their genes has a typo, and as a result, it doesn't make good protein. So because Tony's got 50% of the important SYNGAP1 protein, he has autism, he has sleep disorders, he has behaviors, he has seizures, and he has intellectual disability. So his day-to-day -day management is, you know, treating seizures and treating the behaviors and dealing with sleep, but also uh, parents are constantly dealing with the bugbear in the back of their mind of 
what does the rest of this kid's life look like and how am I going to take care of him and what can I do today to make sure that goes as well as possible. And unfortunately, there's very few patients in our community who are who can answer that for us because the gene was only found in the lab 20 years ago and the first diagnosis was 10 years ago. So with rare exception, most of our patients are under 10 and just a lot of parents working really hard to support their kids and, and try to figure out what the futures are going to look like. God, I feel that that sounds so similar to the path we've been on with CTNNB1 and also how it wasn't found until like 2012. So everyone's pretty young. So there isn't a lot to look forward to age-wise in their future development. That's a hard one. It's really hard. So when did you get the diagnosis for Tony? So like so many rare kids, Tony has a long list of diagnoses. Syngap kids I'm, I'm learning either show up shortly after they turn one, if they have severe delays and good doctors who get genetic testing, or sometime between three and four when they start having seizures. Tony was our first kid. I also find that first kids get diagnosed later than third or fourth kids because third and fourth kids, the mom is like, no, this isn't right. And first kids, parents like me are just like, it'll be fine until they realize it's not. So when Tony was three, his delays were undeniable and we started getting therapies. And then the therapist started seeing seizures and then we started seeing seizures. Syngap kids have very mild seizures initially, just eye rolls and staring spells, absent seizures. And so the absent seizure led to getting an epilepsy diagnosis. And then the epilepsy diagnosis fortunately led to genetic testing. And that's how we realized Tony had a Syngap variant. What did the doctors tell you after you got that genetic test back? It was a terrible weekend. We had been hammering away and uh, we got the first genetic test and it was a VUS. It was uncertain. Um, they, they weren't sure. But fortunately, we had one of the best genetic counselors I've ever met. And she was like, you really need to do another genetic test. And at this point, my kid had been through so many tests. He'd had a fragile X test, which many Syngap kids get. He'd had the Invitae panel. There was another test I don't even remember. And I was like, you want me to get another test? <laughs> I have learned nothing and I have spent so much money and you want me to get another test? And she was so kind and so patient, uh, this wonderful genetic counselor. And she said, Mike, just trust me on this one. I think it's important. And I was like, fine, but this is it. <laughs> and and so we, and it was a hard test. It was a, for the science geeks out there, his, his, his DNA test came back with a, a variant of uncertain significance because it was on an intron, not an exon. And so they wanted to do an RNA test, which was harder to do, more expensive, blah, blah, blah. But we did it. And, and when those results came back, the geneticist was so excited because this is a very new test and it was very you know, geeky that she called me like Friday night at 6 p.m. And she's like, oh, my gosh, we got an answer. It is Syngap, which for her as a scientist was really exciting. But for me as a parent, it was really devastating because at 6 o'clock on a Friday night with my wife away at work and my kids asleep down the hall, I was left with Dr. Google. And two and a half years ago, if you Google any rare disease, you're going to read about online the kids who were diagnosed two and a half years before that. And generally with any rare disease, the first kids to get diagnosed are the ones who were so severe that they got diagnoses, right? So it's still not easy to get one, but five years ago, it's really hard to get one. You had to be obviously affected. And so you sit there reading about Syngap 1 two and a half years ago, and it was just tears rolling. The whole weekend, I was like, oh my God, what's going on? My wife and I started said, okay, well, let's figure it out. And, and we called everyone we knew. And, and really more by luck than anything, we got access to some 
uh, tremendous scientists and clinicians. And we spent a few months just talking to everybody and trying to understand what was and wasn't known about Syngap and, and what we could do about it. Yeah, that takes me back for sure. That's an emotional time to get that call. And one, I wish the genetic counselors would do it first because they're always so warm and snuggly (laughs) next to the geneticist. But yeah, that's that's a hard night and a rough weekend. But it seems like both you and Ashley are just really motivated and you're doers and you're you you kind of took action and it lit a fire to sort of start this research fund that you did. When exactly was the moment that the two of you decided that you had to do something because no one else was? So on that roadshow I mentioned, I mean, we started just through a personal friend. Uh, We got introduced to Dan Lowenstein, who is the vice chancellor of UCSF and one of the kindest, smartest, most just lovely human beings I know. And Dan was very patient with us and sent us to people he's worked with, including Dr. Ampadori at Boston Children's, who runs epilepsy genetics there. I mean, we were really blessed to start with the cream of the crop. And and what we learned from them was Syngap's important. We're lucky as a Syngap community to have really strong scientists. Rick Huguenier is one of the anchor scientists for our community, and he's the head of neuroscience at Hopkins. It's no joke. And he's got a postdoc, Gavin, at, Gavin Rimba at Scripps, who does great work. I can go on. But you know, we learned that there was a lot of good science going on, and there was a lot of open questions, and science was changing really fast right now. And so we could, it's reasonable to hope, I think this was one of the things that we had to hear, it was reasonable to hope that something could come along in a time frame that mattered for Tony. I think that one of my refrains in that first year is what can we do in a time frame that matters? And the other refrain was time is brain, right? My son and your kid's brain are being built right now with not enough of something important. And as a result, they have all these problems. And I'm happy to invest in science, but if it's not going to matter for 30 years, my motivation goes down a lot, right? But if it's going to happen in three to five years, it, it changes the game. And what we learned from Dan and Ann and all these other people, and Rick and Gavin and all these people we talked to was, yeah, things can get done. But, you know, the binding constraint, once you have good scientists and models, which Syngap is blessed to already have, is just warm bodies in the lab, smart warm bodies in the lab. And so we said, okay, let's let's fund some postdocs. And we were also, I'd say, well advised that, um, you know, you can fund a scientist, but the senior scientists are paid for, frankly. And what you really want to do is find good scientists and then fund postdocs in their labs. So you get young scientists training under these Jedis who are learning about your gene and will have a long career in this space because, you know, our our kids have many afflictions, but it's not terminal, unlike some rare diseases, right? So my kid's going to be around, God willing, for many decades, and I want there to be science constantly trying to figure out what we can do to help him. So with, with all of that running around our heads and the fact that we were we felt we could probably raise some money, Ashley and I decided to um, start a, a fund that was focused on investing in the science. There was, there was already around the world a few smaller advocacy organizations in this space, but no one was saying, we fund science. Like it's, it's called the Syngap Research Fund for a reason. We want to make it very clear our job is to get dollars into labs. And, um, and when we started that, that message resonated. I, I would... I would also say that we talked to other rare disease orgs, like we don't suffer from this illusion that we're doing this first. And we said, who else has done this right? And uh, the best example I can give you 
I mean, there's some amazing orgs out there. EBRP is one of my heroes, but also the Dravet Syndrome Foundation. We called them and the founders there very kindly got on the phone with us and said, yeah, we were where you are. There was another org, but we wanted to start one focused on science and it worked. And I, and I remember going to AES two years ago and sitting at the back of their round table with, I'm not kidding, 150 scientists who were, who <laughs> wow. were saying, oh my God, do you remember 10 years ago when it was just 10 of us at a table at AES and now here we are. And, th and at that night, Stoke Therapeutics shared some data on an incredibly promising ASO. And I, and I sat in the back of that room and I said, if I do nothing next year, we're going to have the first annual Syngap Roundtable next year because we have, to, we have to do what they're doing. I mean, DSF, whenever I'm in doubt, I say, what did Dravet Syndrome Foundation do? And I just say, copy them. And my, my board is pretty sick of me saying that, but I'm <laughs> like, look, if we can't figure it out, we'll just copy DSF. No, I think that's brilliant. I think that's brilliant to ask the right questions, right, of which small rare disease out there got it right and to model it after them. I mean, that's something that's also so cool in the rare disease community is how open other people or other advocacy groups are to sharing their information and to helping someone along the way, right? Yeah. Because we're all connected. Yeah. Look, rare disease affects all levels of humanity, right? Then we're all struggling with our kids. Every single one of us is doing our best. And then there's this handful of people who somehow managed to squeeze out time to work on their disease. And then, you know, I can think of a few people you, you've had on your show, like Bo, right? People who just have the time to go to these meetings, we connect with each other, and we realize that we have a lot more in common, right? My, my, my gene is different than your gene. You know, your kid has more epilepsy. My kid has more sleep, whatever. But at the end of the day, we're, we've all got very similar problems. We're having the same conversations with scientists. And I think through organizations like, you know, Combined Brain and others, we can really do more together. And you're starting to see a lot of small rare disease groups figure that out and collaborate. Unfortunately, not all, yeah. but many of us. That brings me to like my most favorite thing about your mission. You have the three words collaboration, transparency, and urgency. And I think each one of those has so much meaning behind that in moving things like this forward. Can you tell me a little bit about what those mean? Collaboration, we have to work together. We are acutely aware that even if we can raise a million dollars or $2 million or whatever, it's not enough, right? We have to work across the parent community, across the scientific community, across industry to get this done. So if you aren't acutely aware that getting a novel therapeutic for a rare disease into a kid is one of the hardest things you can imagine, and you aren't prepared to work with everybody and anybody to make that happen, then you're not going to succeed. I think that was our first insight, right? So collaboration has to be at the heart of what we do every step of the way. Transparency is another thing. I think a lot of people get into this space and everything seems very important and, and, uh, confidential and scientists don't want to tell you what they've done until they've published it. And parents are working on things and they don't want you to talk to the person they're talking to because they've worked so hard to get this far. I mean, a lot of people for good reasons, a lot of good people for good reasons are reluctant to share information because what they're working on is so important. But our instinct is that that's exactly wrong. Um, you can't keep up in this highly complicated space if you're not willing to share as much as possible. Um, so, you know, of course, there are things scientists share with us and they say, look, this is not, do not tell anyone. We respect that, of course. But I think there's a lot of stuff people don't share that is, is 
is silly. Like if you go to the grants page on my website, I had a rare disease leader ask me the other day, hey, can I, can you please share your grant agreement? Because we're doing a grant agreement. I said, yeah, go to my website, click on the grant, that, the whole grant agreement's right there. And they were like, <laughs> really? I was like, yeah. And someone else said, you know, can I see your bylaws? Yeah, they're on my website. Go there. I mean, everything that's, that I can possibly share is on my website. Go there. Because we just, we don't have time to not share and let people know exactly what we're doing. And I think also, you know, we raise money. We go to, we go to, we go to families and say, we go to wealthy people we know and say, please give us money. But we also go to families in our community and say, please give us money. And when they give us money, I see that as dollars coming out of their kids' special needs trust fund, right? So every every rare disease parent, you you had a blog on, you had a podcast on this. Every rare disease parent should have probably have a special needs trust for their kid. And so when I get a donation from a family, that's money coming out of that child's special needs trust fund, and we need to treat it like that. So at the end of Q1 last year, I did a 60-minute Zoom webinar, and I was like, "Here's our bank account. Here's what's in it. Here's where the money's going. This is what's left, crystal clear." Because parents deserve absolutely nothing less than knowing where their money's going. And urgency is simple. Time is brain. My son is six. I started this when he's four. It, it, what I'm being told now is we might have therapies in three to five years. He'll be 10 or 11 by then. He's not going to be a small boy. He's got a lot of challenging behaviors. Time is brain. We, we cannot waste time. Our, our kids' brains are being built as we speak. Yeah, I love all of that. And you're so right. Every single piece of that is so important. And I really respect the fact that you have been so transparent about it. And you're so open to collaborating with other people who aren't even necessarily in the SYNGAP world, but the rare disease world in general. And yeah, time is brain. I love the way you put that. What has been like the hardest part so far when you were getting SYNGAP off the ground and finding your team? What challenges did you run into that maybe other people could learn from if they're thinking about starting a fund or an organization like this? I think there is an art to giving grants, which people underestimate. I, I, looking back, you know, I called scientists. I said, what do you need? They said, this is what I need. And we gave them the grant. We turned around and that money came primarily from our family and also some, some personal friends who, who donated um, substantial amounts of money. And we turned around and we said to the community, look at what we did. And they were like, what? And I was like, here's the grant agreement. They were like, what? And thinking more about communicating across the community and bringing them along is really important. I, I, you know, I now will not give a grant. And for the people who've already gotten grants, they're, they're learning that I will not make another payment until I have a press release. Um, because the parents need to see that the, what the university is doing and, and why this matters. They need to hear from the scientists. I think there's this I don't know if it's historical or what, but there's this, oh, we can't talk to the scientists. And so building that connection, letting the parents hear from the scientists, letting the, letting the scientists hear from the parents, communicating, communicating, communicating is critical, not just from a fundraising point of view, but from a hope point of view. Yes. I, I think a lot of, and that's, that's what matters. When I ask a parent to write a check, it's important to fund science. It's important to put our money where our mouth is and get postdocs and labs. That really matters. And by writing a check, a parent has to at some level accept that it's doing something useful, right? And so it's a good test for hope. Do you believe that there's anything that can happen in your kid's life that will make your kid's life better? When you ask someone to write a check and they say, look, my, this isn't going to help my kid. You've gone from a fundraising conversation to a much more important conversation about, yes, it is. The, the speed of science is, is blistering fast right now. Syngap is an important gene. There's a lot of people working on it. There are ASOs in dishes right now that could be in our kids. 
but we have to keep collaborating and working together and engaging science and talking to industry and making sure it happens. It can happen, but it could also fall apart, which is why we have to hold hands, believe in it and drive it. And so I think that when you start a fund or an organization or whatever, engaging parents and making sure they understand that there's a reason to believe things could improve has become the thing that I didn't understand until I'd say the past year. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think even just for the smallest success that you might get by sharing this information with people, parents, is the fact that it's going to make them more inspired and motivated to raise that money, to ask for donations, and to just help being a small part in that way if they can. Or a big part. Yeah, which is huge. We had one dad who was diagnosed, came and checked us out, talked to us, turned around, did a Facebook fundraiser $25,000 later. You know, wow. you just don't know what you can do until you, until you try. Yeah. I saw that your board carries a lot of families with kids who have Syngap. And I also thought that was really cool because I haven't seen that on a lot of boards for these rare diseases so much where they're they're completely involving their own personal community too, right? Not just these researchers they've found or their friends that they're involved with, but really making everyone a part of the process. Yeah, and I think that might have been a better answer to your last question. So when we started this, it was a small, my wife and I and a, and a scientific advisor who I used to work for at the Gates Foundation. And, um, and then about a year ago, we said, okay, this is now taken off a bit. When we started it, we thought it would be a, just a small fundraising operation and we put money into labs. But parents really like this idea that they could make a difference and that they could, they could engage productively and substantially with scientists. I mean, we've, we're about to write our fifth grant that will put us over a million dollars of commitments, right? That's, that's pretty good after two years. And so, so many families said, we want to work with you. We, we, we like the mantra we want to be involved in this, that SRF grew to the point where I was like, okay, we now need to change the board to be a dozen, at least a dozen families. But that's what we did. And we, we just put out a link on Facebook and said, who would like to be on the board? And people raised their hands. So that's been really great. And I think the other, the other board that matters for every rare organization is your SAB. And I think some orgs put every scientist they know on their SAB, and that can be great. We find that we talk to a lot of scientists and we have a few grantees who we talk to, but our SAB, we've, we've kept to a, a small group of scientists um, and clinicians who are remarkable. I mean, we have Dan Lowenstein, Rick Huguenier, Ingrid Sheffer, and then um, Heather Mefford, who's a geneticist. Not all geneticists are less warm and fuzzy than their GCs. I think Heather Mefford <laughs> is amazing. And uh, Ampadori and then Ellie Brimble actually is on my SAB and she is she was that genetic counselor I was talking about. So those six people, to my mind, cover the gamut. And I, the SAB is not, in my mind, um, a public display of who you know. The SAB is people who you actually can call up and say, hey, somebody just sent me this grant. Is this, is this crazy or is this a good idea? And, and I've been, I think we're very lucky that the quality of, our, of those people we, we consult with is remarkable. Yeah, I mean, you've you've done a lot of you've done a lot of legwork and it's kind of mind-blowing what you've got done in 2 years, Mike. It's like I see parents like you and I'm like, "How?" <laughs> it's really incredible. I think the answer is other parents. Like I have I I have been lucky to have other parents in my community volunteer to help. What's the most exciting thing going on right now with the Syngap Research Fund? So much cool stuff. So when we launched, we put postdocs into into Rick Gavin and Jimmy's labs. Um, those are the sort of three 
people who've been doing SIGGAP for a while in the U.S. In the course of the past year, Marcelo Cova surfaced. He's a researcher at USC who engaged with one of our families, did a lot of cool discussion with uh, one of our dads who's an MD and is on our board, and started building organoids, little mini brains on Syngapians w- without any support what? from us. And then called us up and said, you know, I'm at a stopping point. I need this certain device. And we negotiated and we said, well, we'd rather fund postdocs than devices. But he'd already invested so much in Syngap that, that, that we basically partnered with the USC to support him having this device. It's $50,000. So, you know, a nice car. And and we just we just put that we just gave that grant to USC and he's he's busy building data so that's exciting but you know success begets success so someone else just called us and said hey there's this other researcher um, at UPenn who does epigenetics which is which is not the, the the gene itself but the things that regulate the gene which is really important if you want more of that gene and and she is excited to work on Syngap and. She's actually a Syngap ant, which is kind of cool. So it's a it's a world class epigeneticist who's got a niece who's a Syngapian, and finally said, "Okay, I, I have the time and the and the ability to work on this, and I would like to do so." And asked us to support some postdocs. So the most exciting thing coming out of the USC grant is this other new youngish researcher who we can support uh, to to invest in Syngap and do something that back to my SAB they were all like yeah no one's done this yet this this would be super valuable knowledge and so it's exactly the kind of thing SRF was built for raising money uh, it's going to be a north of a hundred thousand dollars and get a postdoc and a tech in her lab and hopefully help her get data on Syngap to to do more research um, and get an NIH grant so that is the thing that I spend a good chunk of my time on right now so cool. Well, and to have someone who has such a personal connection to it, too, is just really powerful, you know? Yeah. It's it's also cool that people are contacting you now at this point, you know, in the medical in the medical field, because I can imagine you've probably sent out thousands of emails. Yeah, maybe I should have sent out more emails. <laughs> it's really honestly the most work progress I've ever made uh, in rare disease is doing what I'm doing right now. Just talking to other rare leaders. I think Global Genes has been like an amazing conference for us and and just really getting on and then you know Bo big people like Bo Bigelow Bo's one of my heroes yes me too I met him at Global Genes and we just talked and talked and talked and we have this endless iMessage discussion I don't I can't remember the last time I talked to Bo in real life but we're I feel like we're constantly in each other's head comparing notes and uh that's really where you get the leads and the introductions and same with scientists talking to a few of those pretty incessantly. Yes, I agree. I kind of want to be on that iChat, even though I'm doing something totally separate. But I've been just completely humbled and excited by the parents and families that I've met through the rare disease world. They're just they're not like anyone else. And everyone comes from such a graceful place. It's really cool to see the relationships that can be built and all the collaboration between everyone when it isn't exactly the same, but we can completely understand that everyone's day to day. Yeah. And, and it's so nice when you meet the, um, the, what I call the big kids, right? Like the large organizations that have staff that have serious mm-hmm. funding, like Dravet syndrome, CDKL5, like th- there's certain people out there who I just go to and, and I always say, am I bugging you? And they're like, no, like keep asking questions. And, and they're <laughs> so, because, you know, they were where we were. 10 years ago. And, and I think the important point is 
Like I want Dravet syndrome to get a therapy so badly because Dravet is a, it's a devastating epilepsy. Those, those seizures can kill. And, but, but the reason it matters for Syngap families and, and so many other neuroapolis insufficiencies is because when they get a therapy, we have a playbook, right? What Stoke Therapeutics is doing right now with they, it, as soon as they get that done and crack that code, we have a path. And, and I think we, we, we all need to focus less on what's a little bit different between us and figure out more, okay, what is the formation of this block? Like, who do we need to support now and who do we need to root for now so that we can, we can go follow that path to a treatment for our kids? Yeah, the waterfall effect from that is, is huge. For sure. Especially since so many of them are along like the same pathways or, you know, so many are dealing with this protein or that protein. It's just, yeah, making a playbook. That's a good way to put it. And the big kids. I love that. <laughs> what would you say to just a regular parent who's busy, who's, you know, overwhelmed, but also motivated and inspired to put all of that energy into doing something like what you're doing, what would you say to them? How do they begin? I would ask a lot of questions. With the smartest thing Ashley and I did was we spent six months getting the lay of the land and checking our assumptions. I wouldn't jump in thrashing. I would, I would sit back and ask questions and recognize the point I made on collaboration. Like you're never going to, this is too big for one person. So who's your team going to be? And what's what who can you learn from right so figure that out and then bring your community along right it, it it doesn't work for five rare disease parents to keep asking each other to donate to each other's fundraisers on facebook what you got to do is find a way to articulate this disease and what it means to your life to your your extended community and encourage them to support it from a from a fundraising point of view right but then what are you fundraising for so one of the reasons we built SRF was when we said we want to fund something, nobody had an answer to that question until we went to the scientists. And of course, they say, you know, give me postdocs. But with SRF right, right now, if a family shows up and, and gets diagnosed, I had two families two weeks ago get diagnosed and they called me and said, we want to help. And I was like, great. Let me tell you about this epigeneticist at UPenn. We're about to raise a ton of money. And they're both like, great, let's do it. And that was my goal with SRF was to make it so that People who wanted to make a difference could do so without having to figure it out. But if you're in a gene where you have to figure it out, that's a ton of work. And, and I'd say st keep asking questions and, and keep building the team of parents and scientists and, and, and don't ever accept the, it's really complicated, just trust me. I hate that answer. I mean, yeah. either the person you're talking to just wants your money or the person you're talking to isn't smart enough to explain it to you in layman's terms. Either way, you shouldn't work with them. I mean, you need to find somebody who can be like, this is what's going on. This is how, this is the next step. This is why this money makes sense. And this is why it will happen in a time frame that matters for your child. If they can't explain all of that, go find someone else. And if that sounds like too much work for you, go build a team. So like, I don't, you know, I have an MD father on my board who is brilliant and I'm on a constant iMessage with him too. I mean, it looks like I just <laughs> stare at my iPhone all day long, but really I'm like, I'm carving out small slices of, of bigger brains than mine within my patient community to get things done. And yes. uh, so I guess my answer to your question is build a team, ask a lot of questions, and you, your energy and your money is precious. So don't invest it until you understand why it's going to make a difference. 
Uh, I feel like you should have a TED talk on that. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> I'm going to nominate you. And if you want to know more and be empowered, I mean, Mike has so many videos that are available online, YouTube and his website, which will connect in the show notes for sure. Go watch them. Go see what he's talking about when he's telling you that he's laying this all out. It's really fascinating and it's inspiring. And I am so excited to have been connected to you through this just because, uh, I mean, for all the reasons, I think it's amazing. And I'm really excited for you and the whole Syngap family. And I'm looking forward to all of this hard work kind of playing out into future treatments. And I don't think it's far off. I mean, it's obviously not, you know, more than me, but it's incredible. It's, it's three to five years off. And I think the other thing is uh, data. So funding science is good. I, I'm doing it. I'm going to keep doing it. But you got to be ready for what's next, right? So in, I know of a few, safe to say, a few labs and companies who have an ASO, which is the appropriate therapy for our neurohaploid deficiency, that they will be ready to, that should be ready to put into a patient in three to five years. Okay, so a few therapies, three to five years. But getting it from a lab in a mouse where it works to a human requires a clinical trial, which requires a bunch of data. So it's really important for rare disease organizations to get, get the highest quality pharmaceutical grade data ready for their population. And that when I'm not raising money for specific grants is where I'm spending all my time because that is something where I feel like we as a, as a, as a large and growing community need to do much better. So that's the other thing for rare orgs to focus on is solving the data problem. And I mean, there's, that's a huge mountain of work that is a whole other conversation. Cool. I'm excited, Mike. Is there anything else that you would like to leave our audience with? Two quick things. One, you mentioned videos on my site. I think that the thing we've done that's been useful is the blog. We, just because, you know, we our population is growing by a couple hundred a year and parents show up and ask the same questions. So we try to answer them and we try to write it all down. So, so read the blog and, and then and feel free to steal, copy, rebrand it as you need. It's just there to, to try to help other rare parents. And then, you know, in the unlikely event, somebody heard something that was helpful and, and they really want to talk. My email is mike at syngapresearchfund.org. And I'm, I'm happy to talk to anyone um, who's on this journey. Cool. Thanks for that generous offer. And thanks for talking to me a little bit about this. I'm excited to hear more about your research fund and what you guys are all doing to make everything happen. So thanks for being my guest today, Mike. My pleasure. Talk to you later. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate y'all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.